Welcome, everyone, to Kids A to Z with Dr. T. I'm your host, Teresa Signorelli, and we're bringing you information about the five areas of child development. And by that, we mean physical, intellectual, social, emotional, emotional, and moral, so parents can empower their children to thrive. So we have a Brains in Toyland segment today, and we're calling it Positive Parenting and Effective Discipline. And our guest is Dr. Joshua Rosenthal, who is a child psychologist in New York, and we are going to talk about his workshop that he calls Positive Parenting and Effective Discipline. <laughs> and he offers this to parents um, primarily for children between the ages of 2 and 7. And we're also going to talk about some of the philosophies that support it and his philosophies in general and some of the things he offers in his practice. So um, welcome, Josh. Are you there? I'm here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, sure, sure. Before we get into our discussion about positive parenting and effective discipline, why don't you tell the audience briefly about who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm the director of Manhattan Psychology Group as a private psychology group in Manhattan, and we're a team of licensed um, adult and child psychologists, and we also have a behavioral therapist. And we provide most types of child, adolescent, adult, and couples therapies, and we have a couple offices on the Upper West and the Upper East Side. We also offer some specialty treatments, such as parent-child interaction therapy. And we have a intensive social skills training program at a summer camp called Big Apple Day Program. And then we also have an online behavior tracking tool called the Electronic Daily Report Card for school professionals. And I see, personally, I see a full caseload of clients, mostly children and teens, and I also supervise doctoral students. Okay, excuse me. Okay, great. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about um, what a psychologist in your area does or maybe about their training and what they learn um, so that they're able to provide the, the types of services you just mentioned. Sure. So a clinical psychologist like me um, with a specialization in child and adolescent treatment would earn, they would go to undergrad um, and then earn their doctorate, uh, usually getting a master's along the way. Uh, They'd complete a dissertation. um, And then they would complete a full-time clinical internship. Uh, They would receive um, additional postdoc hours, and then they would get licensed. And then the licensure usually includes a national exam and then sometimes a state exam, depending on where you are. Like New Jersey has a state exam, an oral examination, but New York does not. And during the course of our training, we learn about brain behavior, emotions, research, um, and many other fields of psychology. And as psychologists, we can provide a lot of different services, um, treatment services, testing or evaluations. You can supervise. You can do consulting. There's a lot of different things that psychologists can do. Right, right. So, well, we're here to talk about positive parenting and effective discipline. And so what is it that you wish that parents knew about these that you find tend not to or might have misconceptions? So let's, let's start there. So I really, through this workshop, I really want parents to better understand why why their child behaves a certain way and understanding the functions of that behavior and then looking how to improve the relationship because getting children to listen um, is really based on the relationship that the parent has with that child before they want them to listen. And that comes through play with children. The way you improve the relationship is through play. And then also wanting parents to um, how to provide consistent and effective discipline when they do want their child to listen or behave. So right. those, so those th- two combinations of play and discipline. Right. And I think what resonated with me was when you said you want parents to understand better why they're behaving in a way they do. And is that because if you understand why, you, you know what you need to do to help redirect their behavior? Exactly, because the same behavior um, could have multiple meanings in different situations. For example, if a child is crying or whining, they could be whining because they're tired or because they're hungry or 
um, because they're having physical pain. Or they could be whining because they want something. Um, and they know if they continue to whine, the parent will eventually give in. So it's really important that, you know, be able to take a pause and understand what the function, what the child is trying to accomplish with the behavior, and then respond accordingly. Right. Right. Okay. And what about um, the ideal audience? And we had mentioned um, children two to seven. So is there a way you can expand on that and um, let parents know who really would be ideal? Sure. So if if the parents have a child aged two to seven, then they obviously would benefit but also parents with kids that are younger than two um, because the best type of intervention is one that happens early on. So, you know, I would love for parents that are even pregnant or, you know, about to conceive to come in and and learn this information to kind of prevent things uh, from happening. Um, You know, really prevention is much more effective than trying to deal with the problems, especially in the moment. So um, I welcome, you know, parents of all ages. And, and there's different protocols for families with children above seven years old, um, which I'm not going to get into today, but there are options for families. It's not like you've got no options as soon as your child turns eight years old. There's just a different type of protocol, a different way of intervening because of their developmental level. Right. Right. So what I like about what you said there was that you don't have to wait until there's a problem (laughs) to figure out how to fix it or take a workshop like this or seek the services of a psychologist like yourself, that you can build skills beforehand so that you can have a much more effective way of interacting with your children. Exactly. Exactly. early, Early intervention is always the key in pretty much any healthcare situation you're dealing with. And this is no exception. Yeah. Okay. All right. Great. So let's talk a little bit more about your approach. And um, I've read that you use two basic principles in your approach, one being cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, and another is parent-child interaction therapy, or PCIT. So would you explain what these are um, to our listeners? And perhaps you can include research, um, what research says about them. Sure. So cognitive behavioral therapy is an umbrella term uh, for that focuses, it's a type of therapy that focuses on the interaction between thoughts, feelings, uh, body sensations, and then behavior. So cognitive behavior therapy. The body sensations is something that has kind of been built in, but that's really important. And um, it teaches, CBT teaches people how to change the things they do have control over, which is their faulty thinking. But we often have Um, sort of maladaptive or automatic thoughts that don't really match the situation or the perception might be off, and then maladaptive behavior patterns. So things that you've been doing for a long time and they're clearly not working, but you're kind of stuck doing them. And so what you do is you challenge these thoughts um, by uh, trying to think of something that would counter the the automatic thoughts that you have and uh, increasing awareness and engaging in some kind of incompatible behavior, so something that would sort of disrupt this um, this negative cycle that people get stuck in. Um, mm-hmm. And when you put all those together, you can, you know, make a huge impact on things like anxiety and depression, and there tends to be the most research for anxiety and depression. And CBT um, works really well for sort of mild to moderate, um, anxiety and depression, and then with combination of medication, you get the most um, the most effect. Okay. So, um, oh, go ahead. And a lot of studies to support uh, the use of CBT and specific anxiety, like OCD um, or panic disorder. Uh, there's a lot of specific protocols developed specifically for those types of um, disorders. Okay. So by OCD, you mean? Obsessive-compulsive disorder, sorry. Okay, okay, sure. And now the cognitive behavioral therapy, the CBT, we're talking about, maybe can you, is there an example you can give us of maybe a faulty thinking or a, a maladaptive or a, a poor behavior and the thought um, sure, that you might suggest sure. so the, the child can use to challenge that? Sure. So the easiest one, um, and unfortunately the one we don't see that often in our practices, um, would be a specific phobia. I mean, you do see it, but 
it's rarely as circumscribed as this, but just to give a very easy example, so a child comes in with a specific phobia, phobia let's say it's of dogs, and they may or may not have had a bad example or a bad situation with a dog in the past where the dog barked at them or licked them or even nipped at them or, you know, God forbid, bit them. Um, they do not have to have had that negative experience, but they can become conditioned to be afraid of dogs. It can happen gradually or it can happen suddenly, but for whatever reason, um, they're afraid of dogs and they might walk on the other side of the street. They might not want to go to the park. Um, they may avoid, uh, you know, certain parts of their apartment building or certain, you know, streets because they know there'll be dogs there. And so they have these faulty thoughts that uh, something bad is going to happen. The dog is going to bite me. Let's say that's their thought. If I go near the dog, the dog is going to bite me. Um, and then they do these behaviors that um, allow them to escape or avoid from the dog. And those behaviors just reinforce decreasing the anxiety by avoiding the dogs. So when you uh, start out with a child having that type of phobia, you want to create what's called a fear hierarchy. And the fear hierarchy is a uh, graduated uh, list of fear stimuli that the child will gradually work their way up like a ladder, uh, increasing in difficulty and um, intensity, uh, getting to the ultimate goal of, let's say, petting a dog. So if the child's afraid the dog's going to bite, you might say, okay, well, let's look at pictures of dogs. Let's listen to dogs barking. Um, let's uh, look at a dog from across the street. And you just increase, increase until you get to the point where the child is actually petting the dog. And over the course of the treatment, you would uh, reinforce and, and really praise the child and maybe add some incentives for them to try these new and new increasingly difficult behaviors. And that's what we call exposure therapy, uh, which is very, very effective in anxiety uh, treatment. Okay, and that um, falls adult, under the umbrella of cognitive behavioral of CBT, therapy. Exactly. So CBT is a very large umbrella term for um, a type or types of treatments that attack um, thinking and behavior, mm -hmm. basically. Uh, and it's very effective. Um, you see, you can see very marked changes in reasonably short amounts of time. Um, it's a very active process between the therapist and the client or the family or the parents, um, which is often the case with the children. And um, it can be, can be kind of fun because there's some homework assignments sometimes or home practice, we like to call it, um, and really helping people to feel empowered um, facing these anxieties rather than escaping or avoiding from them. Right. Right. Okay, great. No, that's very helpful. Um, so let's move on then to the parent-child interaction therapy. What can you tell us about that? So PCAT or parent-child interaction therapy is a very, very exciting type of um, behavior therapy. So under the umbrella of CBT, you, sometimes you have just behavior therapies that aren't working so much on the cognitions, but it's just working on changing the behavior. And oftentimes when you change the behavior, your thoughts change as well, and vice versa. Um, but in this, in this treatment, PCIT, it's been around for many years, um, probably 10 or so years, but it has not been disseminated quite well to the public, so it's just starting to get some traction. Um, and what it's really designed for are children with behavioral problems, so kids ages 2 to 7. Um, and I say the sweet spot in typical practice is 3 to 6, uh, where you are teaching parents specific play skills. So, um, you know, parents often think that playing with their child, uh, you know, can be a passive process or they don't know exactly what to do or, you know, they do the same things over and over again. So you teach them very, very specific ways of playing with their child that's designed to enhance the relationship. Um, and then after that, you teach them very, very specific discipline skills. And the goal is to improve the relationship because, like I said earlier, um, discipline and getting a child to listen is based on the underlying relationship. Um, and that's really, really something that people don't quite understand and don't focus on as much as they should. And, mm -hmm. and then once you have that mastery of that relationship through the play therapy skills, 
then you move on to the discipline. So there's two modules, each module lasting anywhere from four to eight sessions, and it's based on mastery. And the other thing that makes it really unique is the parents receive live coaching in the moment behind a one-way mirror. So the typical paradigm is that the therapist is with the child trying to get the child to change their behavior, and then the therapist meets with the parents separately trying to get the parents to change their behavior. The problem with that is that the therapist only spends an hour or so per week, maybe two hours a week with the, ther- with the parent and the child. This paradigm takes the therapist out of the equation and focuses on the parent and the child together because that's who spends the most time together. And so the therapist coaches the parent behind a one-way mirror with a microphone in the parent's ear teaching them these skills and not just teaching them these skills but coaching them in real time. So the therapist knows exactly how well the parent is doing and learning the skills and, uh, and then gives them home practice and tracks the home practice. So it's, a, it's an intense treatment in the sense that um, there is home practice, uh, it's a manualized approach. Um, it's typically once a week, so the parents don't have to be coming in multiple times a week, but there is um, sort of every session has an agenda, um, and it is by far the most effective way to deal with kids with behavioral problems. And uh, I'm really excited to be able to offer this treatment, and we have, there's a number of clinicians in my group who do it, and we have two PCIT rooms. Um, it's a lot of fun. And the parents, you know, by the time the parents have come to us, they don't enjoy playing with their child. And so I say to parents, you know, you are going to um, like playing with your child by the end of this treatment. Yeah, and as I'm a speech-language pathologist, and, and that carryover of being able to do something with your patient or client in your clinic room, just you and your patient, having them do that in the home setting with the family and in the real world is really what's so critical. And that's what I really am encouraged about with this technique is that you have the parent and the child together, and, and like you said, you're coaching them through and, give, and modeling in ways um, what to say and how to behave so that they can have um, positive interactions with their kids. And um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but you're right. You the the professional, the clinician, is only with that patient for a short amount of time, and it's in the real world, in the home setting, where it's so critical. So um, exactly. Yeah. Is there? Can you give us a little example of um, of something that's worked? Sure. Um, so when the, when the family comes in, um, we start off with the play therapy skills, and a lot of times we do a baseline testing. We always do a baseline testing where we ask the parent, we put the parent through three paradigms with the child, and at this point we're just doing baseline testing, so we're not coaching the parent, meaning we're not giving them any help. We're just looking to see how they, they deal with these three settings. And the three settings are, uh, the parent letting the child lead the therapy or lead the play. So they'll have five minutes and you instruct the parent to follow the child's lead for five minutes. And then we shift to the parent leading the play. So the parent now has to get the child to follow along with their, with their game according to their rules. And by the way, we're using you know, creative toys. So these are building blocks, uh, trains, cars, uh, stacking, um, nothing with excuse me, with uh, rules or uh, winners or losers because we don't want the children to get caught up in the rules of the game and the parent to get caught up on cheating and winning and losing. So it's really just creative toys, which is perfect for kids this age. So you have the child-led, the parent-led, and then the third one is cleanup, uh, which is, can be the, often the hardest for kids that don't want to listen. So we put the parent through these three paradigms with the child behind the one-way mirror and then we just code them and just watch to see how they do. And that becomes the baseline. And, and oftentimes parents start out with um, doing things that um, are counterproductive to the relationship, like asking a lot of questions, for example. It seems innocuous, but when you ask the question, you end up taking away control over, you take away control over the play because you are not really paying attention to what the child is doing. You're offering indirectly something for them to consider. And um, so you see a lot of questions in the beginning, and we coach parents on how to interact 
without using questions. Um, and that specific thing is something that parents start out with getting a lot of questions, and then by the end of the treatment, they're not asking any questions because they've learned how to communicate and how to show affection and pay attention without taking away the control uh, during the play. And it can be, it seems small, but it can make a huge difference. And what you see is the child really enjoys the time a lot better. And it's not special time. It's not, you know, it's not real play time without the parent there. So it's not about the toys. It's about the parent being there and sort of witnessing and participating in the play with the child. And, um, and, and parents love that. I mean, who wouldn't love to get to spend 20 minutes a week um, playing with their kid? And, you know, it feels good for them and it feels good for the child. Um, so that phase of the treatment is, is really fun. It gets a little trickier when we move into the discipline because then we're giving commands and timeouts, which, um, you know, for some parents can be very tenuous and kind of scary because their child will have a big reaction to it. Um, but we, we, we go very slowly and it's based on mastery. So, you know, you don't move unless the parent has mastered the, pr- the previous skills. Right, right. Yeah, no, it it sounds like a really wonderful approach, and I'm taking notes as you're talking, just thinking of ways we could adapt this for uh, for my field of speech-language pathology and coaching parents to um, prompt their children to use more language, to speak more, and to understand for, for children of comprehension problems. But um, it, it really is a nice paradigm. It Thank really you. is. Yeah. Um, and um, so is there anything else you want to add about that? Um, no, just in terms of how parent-child interaction. I mean, I can talk about the workshop if you want. Yeah, let's um, do that. Okay. And then, yeah, let's let's start talking about um, the focus of your workshop. So in the workshop, I basically go through teaching parents how to do the play skills. Um, and, you know, I teach parents, like I was saying, how to play with their child in a very, very specific way during what's called special time. And that's the label for it. And you create this special time, and it's the same time, you know, every day. Um, and parents, children start to anticipate it and look forward to it. And this time builds the relationship because the parent follows the child's lead, and the parent can do three things. They can give labeled praise. So I really like how you're building that tower so tall, right? So that's a very, very specific positive attribute to something that the child has done. They can reflect what the child says. So Billy says, look, Mom, I'm building a tower. Mom shows that she's paying attention and that she um, sort of condones the behavior and likes the behavior by giving attention to it and reflecting by saying, oh, you're telling me you're building a tower. So just simple reflection. And then the third thing would be describing. So if he's building a tower and he puts the red block on top of the blue block, she would say, I see you're putting the red block on top of the blue block. Pretty simple. So three things, labeled phrase, reflections, and behavior descriptions. And those are the different skills that we're measuring uh, when we watch the, the parent and the child play to see if they move uh, fast into mastery. They have to have 10, 10, and 10 in one session, and then they're ready for mastery. And then the parents practice this at home. And, and so by 10, parents, 10, and 10, I'm sorry, Josh, by 10, 10, and 10, you mean 10 um, successful praises. interactions? Yeah, mm-hmm. 10, 10 praises, 10 reflections, and 10 um, uh, favorite descriptions. Okay, great. Within a five-minute period. Okay. And, you know, it, it, it seems easy, but uh, it's, it's actually quite difficult, and it takes a lot of concentration to turn this into muscle memory. And that's what we're getting, we're trying to get to through the, the practice. And also, you know, we want parents to do it so well because when we know that they leave, there's going to be a shift, there's going to be a drift in skills. And so we want them to have a cushion so that they can still get across the skill even if it's not at the same accuracy as when they're under our supervision. Right. And under your supervision, they're in a quiet room. There's no phone calls. There's no other kids coming in. There's no life <laughs> happening per se, like when you're in a real home situation. So I imagine that would be helpful for that as well. It is. It's a blessing and a curse. But what we're also doing every day, they're also practicing this. So they're they're generalizing it as the treatment is occurring. They're not waiting until they master it and then trying to generalize it. 
So they're practicing at home. They're coming in. They're sharing experiences about how hard it is or how easy it is, and we're giving them uh, feedback and tips on how to continue to do it. You know, for example, you know, like you said, you want to turn off the TV. You want to have just you and your child. Uh, you know, hopefully the siblings are occupied. You want your cell phone to be off. I mean, it's really, really kind of a special thing to have this special five minutes of quality time. And in today's society, especially in New York City, it's um, you know it's just really precious, and children appreciate that, and they certainly notice it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the other piece is what they're not supposed to do. So we tell parents what to do, and the other things they're not supposed to do are, like I mentioned earlier, avoid questions. We also don't want the parents giving any commands. So during the child play time, the parents are not allowed to suggest or offer or direct the play in any way, and then uh, avoid also negative statements. So anything that could put the child down or take over control, the parents would get dinged or uh, marked down for doing that. If the child is disruptive or negative attention-seeking, the parent is supposed to ignore um, or give information in sort of a neutral way or end the time. Ignoring is a very underutilized skill that uh, we we really try to teach parents how to do. There's so many interactions that are um, provoked and maintained through um, uh, negative attention that could easily be um, reduced or eliminated through ignoring. And so we, we really teach parents how to do that. Um, so like I said, this happens with each parent for five minutes per day at home. In the, in the office, it's obviously much longer. Um, you do it with both parents or one parent. It does not matter. Um, and like I said, the best types of toys are creative plays with uh, creative toys with no winners or losers, uh, no right and wrong. Um, and once the parents master that special time, then we teach them the second phase or PDI, um, parent-directed uh, interaction, where you're teaching them how to give effective commands, um, you know, like please hand me the block or please sit down next to me. Um, these are considered effective commands for a number of reasons, which I'm, I'm not going to go into today. Um, and then based on their response, the parent would either praise them or give them a warning. And then based on the child's response from that, either give a timeout or give praise. So there's a, a very specific um, sequence that, that we teach the parents uh, to use uh, that has very specific words, very, very specific behavioral responses, so that the parent knows exactly what to do um, based on the child's reaction. So there's no, there's no um, guessing. There's no winging it. Because when that happens, parents kind of resort to bad habits um, or even corporal punishment, which um, we all know only produces very short-term results. Um, so we move them into this parent-directed phase after they master the CDI, the child-directed. Um, and again, we teach all these skills through live coaching behind the one-way mirror um, with the home practice. And this makes the generalization um, much more effective. And that's what's so exciting about it is that you see changes at home as soon as you start this um, versus other types of therapies which tend to be more heavy in the office rather than at home. Right. And you can, and as you said, you can really see those results immediately. It's a, it's a quick turnaround for that. It can be. I don't want parents listening to this to think that if I start doing this special time, everything's going to be fixed. It depends a lot on how much the parents practice, how, um, how accurate their practice is. depends on the level of severity for the child how long the behaviors have been in place by the time they get to me. Um, but there, there tends to be a very positive response early on if, if everything goes according to plan. Right. Do you, have, do you ever videotape the parents so that they can go back and watch themselves and see? Um, when you're in the moment, there's so many things going on, they may be doing things that they don't see or realize. Is that a part of it or something um, you think might be beneficial? Yeah, that's a good question. We actually do video record all of our sessions. Um, in, in today's behavior therapy, uh, in, in contemporary behavior therapy, um, video 
playback and video analyzation is very helpful. And so it can be kind of the, the standard uh, for different types. I know it is in PCIT. Um, I don't know about all other types of therapies, but it, I think it should be. Um, and the technology is not that expensive. Um, so, yeah, we do record all of our sessions. Um, we have parents sign waivers so they can be recorded. And it's for our own internal process so that we can get better as clinicians and share information with each other inside our group um, and, you know, review our sessions and then also to share with the parents. Um, but it's very helpful to be able to go back to the video and look at, you know, what happened and, you know, how we can do it better or differently next time. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's something um, that's used. I mean, athletes record themselves and look back at what they do. I teach at Marymount Manhattan College, and we're training speech pathologists, and we videotape partly to collect good data, like you said, and our, train ourselves as clinicians, and the students can see what they're doing that they might not realize they're doing. So it's it's a really wonderful tool that parents could even, I guess, do on their own now that iPhones and all the fancy gadgets we have are really um, easy for doing that. Exactly. And um, when a parent, let's say a parent can't make it into their session for whatever reason, I often will do um, home coaching, so over the phone or Skype or both. So I'll have the parent set up a computer uh, with a webcam facing the play area. I'll be on the telephone with the parent and I can hear everything they're saying and see everything they're doing and um, still coach them as if they were in the office. And so it's wonderful. Um, so it, it really helps move the treatment along. Right. Right. Is there, um, there anything else to add for your workshop before we move on to some other topics? Um, so it's very interactive. I, you know, I come out to the audience and I have the parents practice these skills, practice the play skills, and then practice the timeout sequence and with toys, and they really like it. So it's not, you know, they're not just sitting back on a lecture format. I give information and handouts, but I really want the parents to be practicing it so that they can, uh, they can walk out and start doing the playtime. Okay, great. Yeah, it's, it sounds, um, we were talking earlier about, you know, educating yourself or doing things before you have a problem. And it sounds like um, um, I think any parent, when they go through their prenatal training and conversations with their medical doctor, should be thinking about taking courses like this to really help them build good parenting skills. Um, so you had mentioned early intervention being so important, and um, this is a great way to prevent any problems that might come along the way or mitigate any problems that might happen no matter what you do. But... Um, uh, so it, especially a workshop format um, where you said it's very interactive, it just sounds like a wonderful thing that I think parents would should consider. Can I just add one thing? So in yeah, New York sure. City, when a, child, when a child is evaluated for earlier intervention, um, they get a number of services. They get OT, PT, speech. Um, they get counseling. They might get ABA therapy where a therapist comes into the home. But unfortunately, PCIT is not on that list. And um, it's, a, it's really unfortunate because a lot of these kids with behavioral problems are not getting the intervention they need. And there's a couple of reasons for that. It, one is um, PCIT is, um, uh, although it has tremendous research support, uh, it's not as known to the public as OT right. and PT and speech. Um, so and I just want to very, clarify those, Josh, I just want to clarify those terms. So OT, you mean occupational therapy, PT is physical therapy, speech is speech-language pathology. Um, and did you mention counseling or play therapy? Uh, yeah, counseling, yeah. either group counseling or individual counseling in the school, and then ABA therapy, applied behavior analysis right. uh, within uh, an ABA therapist. Yeah. Thank you for, for clarifying that. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it's yeah, it's it seems a shame and it doesn't mean it has to stay that way, but the what you described in the the parent-child interaction therapy um and the play with um the children is is very it's similar to what we do in speech language pathology where we're trying to empower the child to communicate more uh, by them physically talking or gesturing or at what they're understanding. Um and it might be um I think it might be something that over time 
the world of early intervention um, may open up to that because it's if the child and parent can't interact, they can't learn and function, and it's going to affect how they perform in school, how they're going to perform um, and improve in their speech and language therapy, in their occupational therapy, in their physical therapy. So um, I would hope that that will change where it's, it's not on the menu of options, where it, where it starts uh-huh. to become a part of that menu. Yeah, and there's a there's actually another version of PCIT called TCIT, where the therapist goes in and coaches the teacher in real time, uh, not behind a one-way mirror, but really mm-hmm. just kind of, um, you know, standing behind them, coaching them on interacting with a particular, you know, one child or a particular set of children in the classroom, trying to teach uh, and coach the teacher on using these skills with the student in the classroom. So right. that's a whole other option, which is, you know, unfortunately not on the menu. And, and the reason I think, just to finalize the point, is that we have not developed a, an effective way of disseminating PCIT to large groups of families. Um, it remains sort of a, um, a one-to-one modality. They are looking at group group interventions, but, you know, every parent needs a coach. So uh, so that makes it sort of a one-to-one uh, intervention, which I think slows down the dissemination. So, But I think we'll get right. there. We're on the right track. Right. And it sounds like the workshops you have are, are in a step in that direction. Yes. Yes. Okay. So let's talk a little bit more about your personal style and your approach as a clinician. And from what I read, I understand that your training um, encompasses a number of theoretical approaches and that you subscribe to an earlier is better, which we've mentioned a couple of times, and input excuse me, input versus output. So why don't you tell us about that a bit? Sure. So, you know, we know from years of research, outcome research, that ADHD, anxiety, depression, and nearly every psychological or psychiatric disorder shows the importance of early intervention and prevention. And, you know, with kids, you know, it's hard for parents because a lot of things go away over time. And so sometimes I'll tell parents, you know, let's just see what happens, you know, like separation anxiety. It peaks at 36 months and then it goes down. And so, you know, sometimes things will go away and you just kind of need to wait it out. Um, But if something has been around for more than a month and it's starting to cause impairment, you know, I, I really encourage families to seek out attention, even if it's for the healthcare professional to check them out and say, you know what, everything's okay, just, you know, try to avoid this or, um, you know, this is probably related to that. Um, just because you don't want things to be building up. See, the problem is is what, when parents come in, a behavior or a set of behaviors has been ingrained. It's been there for years. So it's become a bad habit. And we all know that changing habits is really, really tough. Because um, you're not just changing your habit, you're trying to change the child's habit. And depending on the child's age, um, they may or may not be motivated or have any insight about it. So, uh, you know, I often, I often wish that I had met families years earlier. You know, I wonder what would our conversation look like if instead of at age seven, we, you know, they came in when the child was three and they noticed that he was a little bit more hyperactive than his peers or he was, you know, kind of bouncing off the furniture you know, what would I have done with the parents then instead of trying to kind of clean up the mess now and be reactive to it at age seven? Right. Um, and that that's a wish I think every allied health care professional has is, and that's part of the reason why I started this show was because I was always finding parents coming to me too late with misinformation. So how, what can you suggest? So again, you'd mentioned earlier um, if a certain behavior is lasting more than a month, is that a good rule of thumb? That if a yeah, parent had had come in after a month when the child was maybe around three or four? Yeah, there's no there's no perfect there's no perfect scale. Sometimes parents are going to be, you know, jumping the gun too early, and sometimes they're going to miss it and be too late. But you know, if you're jumping the gun and you're too early, then really the downside is you know, you had an extra appointment with a doctor. Um, you know, so what I tell parents is, you know, where does your child fall when they're, you know, fall on the spectrum when they're with 
other peers. You know, if you go to a birthday party, you go to a park, or, you know, you're around cousins, um, where does your child kind of fall on the spectrum of the behaviors that the kids of similar ages are doing? Um, has this particular behavior been around for more than a month? And is it causing impairment? I mean, that's what a, ch a child psychologist or child therapist is going to ask you is how is this impacting? So, for example, um, you know, let's say the child is uh, afraid of dogs, the same one that we were using before, um, but there's no dogs in the building. And, you know, you see one dog every once in a while when you go to the park. Not really interfering so much, but the child may be afraid of dogs. Uh, so maybe there's nothing to do about it at that point. You kind of have to wait till dogs become more of a presence in the child's life. You know, you don't, you're not going to read the, you know, bedtime stories that involve dogs, you know. So you're, you're looking for ways that it, the behavior interferes. Um, and, you know, sometimes if there's a family history, you know, so ADHD um, or anxiety, things that are very genetically loaded, um, if the parent has either one of those, uh, then I would, you know, encourage the parent to come in sooner rather than later because probably the child, you know, got it from one of them, either, either or both parents. Um, and then you can, you know, educating the parents with, you know, psychoeducation about, you know, what their child is prone to can really make a big difference down the road. I mean, because so, so many parents just don't know and they think that, um, you know, they're doing something wrong or they think that, you know, it's going to get worse. And really, it, it, sometimes it can just be about tweaking something, you know, like having the parent ignore a behavior rather than give it attention. Um, right. Something as simple as that, and sometimes it's, it's much more complicated. Right. So some of the things that you said that really resonated with me that I think would be helpful is you mentioning a child's peers. How is your child functioning relative to their peers? That could be an indicator that you may want to seek the advice of a professional. The second thing was, um, is that behavior interfering with general um, overall good functioning? And if that's the case, then seeking a professional um, would be smart, right, if they have a family history on that certain behavior or problem, and then just having the parents um, become better educated. And um, what we always advocate on the show here is going to the expert, and that's part of the reason why I had asked you at the beginning, talking to parents about what a psychologist has to do um, to get certified or licensed as a psychologist, what you learn about. Um, a lot of times... Um, Parents get information from general um, sites, either a website or a pediatrician or a teacher who is trained in medicine and general education, respectively, and they don't get to the professional like the psychologist, the occupational therapist, the speech pathologist, et cetera, until it's too late. So um, um, that's part of the reason why I asked this question, and I, I love um, – those ideas of how do they function relative to their peers and, you know, is this interfering with, you know, daily living and, and, and good living? Yeah. So, um, so I interrupted you there a little bit, but is there anything else that you wanted to say on um, what you were saying? Um, not in terms of earlier is better. I think, I think the point is, uh, and no one, no one disagrees. I mean, everyone agrees to that. It's just a matter of, I think, for parents, when they have a lot on their plate, how do they prioritize, you know, and, mm -hmm. you know, try to pay attention to the things. And, and oftentimes, you know, kids will bring up triggers for the parents. And some parents will be really kind of, you know, upset about it. And some parents will be kind of in denial about it. And some parents will be really proactive about it. So, you know, working with parents, you know, working with kids, you're always working with the parents and trying to really help the parents feel understood and validated about their own personal reactions to their child's concerns. Um, I was just working with a, um, actually a, a family friend who came to me in confidence saying that she was having some, you know, some real trouble with one of her kids and her young daughter was having a lot of separation anxiety and brought up a lot of her own personal history of separation anxiety and how her parent dealt with it in sort of a not-so-nice way, kind of punishing her, and how she really wanted to, you know, handle it differently. And, you know, she's really open to the process, and that makes a huge difference. 
um, parents, if they can be introspective and kind of, and if you have a partner working together as a team, you know, getting support, um, you know, like the tag team approach for, you know, especially when a child's having a lot of difficulty. Um, The other thing I would just say about input versus output is that, you know, when parents engage in treatment, you know, I explain to them that their, their participation in the treatment is really important. You know, I see kids for an hour a week, maybe two hours, um, you know, while, you know, the parents are with them all the time. And children really learn to change their behavior by receiving feedback from the environment. So teachers and parents, that is the environment. Um, I'm just sort of a modifier of the environment. And, um, and that's why I try to not rely so heavily on my interactions with the child. Um, I'm more of an information gatherer. Um, sometimes I can, you know, for the older kids, you obviously can make a different impact. But for kids under seven, um, it's going to be more of a, you're an adjunct sort of trying to modify the environment for them. Um, and the more effort that the parents put into learning the skills and being consistent with the skills, the more gains their child will make in general. There's always exceptions, but in general, you know, parents that do the home practice, that follow up, that ask questions, um, that, you know, really look at their role, um, you just see more gains. And it's a pleasure to work with those parents. And it's a challenge to work with, you know, the parents that aren't at that spot and try to move them into um, uh, a more receptive and kind of proactive stance. Right. Okay. So let's Let's talk about maybe some common questions you often find parents have for you. Sure. So one of my um, one of my most common questions would be, how long is treatment going to last? I think, you know, in mental health versus, you know, going to your pediatrician, you say, okay, he has a cold. How long is the cold going to last? Um, you know, most most times you can give a pretty good estimate of, well, you do this, rest, and take that. You know, it should be gone in a couple of weeks, and if it's not, or you know, then come back. With mental health, um, there's so many variables at stake that it's really hard to predict how the family is going to, how the child and the parents, and or how they're going to react to the treatment. And so um, you really don't know how things are going to go until you get into it. It's almost like sort of like exploratory surgery, which is, you know, the worst kind of surgery because you're having someone go in and, you know, open you up and then you don't really know what you're going to find. And so you kind of don't know that. You try to do an assessment and you do an intake and you gather as much information as you can, but, you know, you really sometimes you don't, you don't discover things until you're into the treatment. So I tell parents, you know, that it's going to really vary depending on the severity of the problem, how long it's been around for, sort of how ingrained that bad habit is that we talked about earlier um, and that everyone is different. You know, in PCIT or other manualized approaches, you have a framework that you're working off of. So, like I said, PCIT could be anywhere between 10 and 16 sessions. That's the average. But you might have families that finish it in eight. You might have families that finish it in 30. Um, So you try to give people sort of averages and and then, you know, keep the feedback coming so they kind of know where they are. And that's why you, you like manualized approaches like PCIT because you have sort of a clear agenda, start, uh, you know, a, a finish. How do you know when you're finished? You, you meet certain criterias. Um, but a lot of therapies are not like that, and so you have to use more clinical judgment than uh, sort of a, a, a pre, predetermined uh, outline. Right, so that, that's another plus for the, uh, for the PCIT. Uh, I yeah. think that you, you there are there are there are goals, and you, when you reach them, you know you're good. And that again, the PCIT that's the parent-child interaction therapy. Um, right. Yeah. And um, what else? I imagine parents have questions about insurance and stuff like that. Yeah. So, um, in mental health, you know, it's it's unfortunate. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of differences between traditional healthcare and then mental healthcare. Um, one being that mental health, people in the mental health field, you know, if you accept insurance, you are often giving up a lot of control to the insurance companies and they tell you 
how many sessions you can have and what types of services you can provide. Um, and so a lot of clinicians just choose not to accept insurance so they can regain, you know, maintain control. Um, and so our group, Manhattan Psychology Group, does not participate with insurance, and so families have to pay us at the time of service, and then we give them a receipt for out-of-network reimbursement. Um, and, you know, that works for some families and other families it does not. And if the family cannot afford the services, you know, we try to find them someone. And, uh, you know, I, I belong to a lot of, you know, psych directory or psych professional groups, and I can often find someone uh, who accepts their insurance um, and try to, you know, help them out. Some some providers will only accept out-of-network, so you can go to them and they will not charge you anything up front, but then they'll bill your insurance for you as an out-of-network provider, and then you have to give them the money when the check comes in. Um, so money can be kind of tricky when dealing with mental health care. Um, but, you know, I always try to help people. And if someone is reaching out for help, then I try to reward that behavior by either giving them help directly, myself or our group, or helping them, connecting them with someone who can. Right. And I guess, um, are there, again, going back to my experience as a speech pathologist in a university-based clinic that I run at Marymount Manhattan, um, a lot of university programs work on sliding scales. Um, Actually, our clinic happens to be a free clinic. But are there local... um, I would imagine families could go to psychology programs. Do they have their own in-house clinics? Is that an option for families, perhaps? Absolutely. There's there's probably five or six doctoral-level psychology, clinical psychology programs in Manhattan and Bronx and Queens, and you, they have um, clinics. They have outpatient clinics where you can get very low-fee therapy from the doctoral students with supervision, and those are a great mm-hmm. option. Um, yeah, and, and if I was going to say, if people aren't in the New York area, they should check their local university systems. That this is this is fairly common practice in in the allied health profession. So, so yes, go ahead. Absolutely, I'm sorry. absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. And you can get low cost testing done through clinics um, like that. You know, the downside is you know you're working with someone less experienced, but they're getting great supervision, and then there can be tends to be a, a long wait list sometimes. So it really yeah. depends on where you go, but it's a great resource for families that, you know, may not have, um, you know, good insurance or no insurance um, or wanting a sliding scale. And a lot of clinicians will offer a sliding scale. So um, you should, you know, always feel empowered to ask around and find something because you don't want to start a treatment that you can't finish. So it's really important, you know, you kind of have a sense of your the upfront costs um, so that you can stick with it. Right. And if there are children, too, in um, the school system, um, there's resources there for them, too, that the um, educational system can cover. Right. If your child um, has an IEP, you can get free services through the city. Right. Right. Through your local schools. So let's talk a little bit about, I guess, your feelings about families reaching out sufficiently or not for emotional counseling and, and, you know, do they reach out as much as you think they should? And if not, you know, what are the obstacles that might prevent them and, and how might we change that if that's the case? Sure. So, you know, I have a very kind of skewed sampling bias, meaning all of the people that contact us are looking for help. Um, so I don't know about the families that aren't reaching out for help. But in general, statistics, um, you know, surveys, large uh, surveys show that only a third of people, um, adults or uh, adults with children with special needs, um, actually seek help. And of those third, only a third actually get help. So, uh, you know, we should be doing a better job of, you know, I think there is still a stigma that people, you know, sort of keep it to themselves or keep it in the family or don't talk about it. and I think that's unfortunate. So I think, but there are a lot of great sort of mental illness awareness campaigns um, and trying to, you know, a lot of like famous people talking about their bipolar disorder or depression. And I think that's really good at kind of destigmatizing um, psychological or psychiatric. Um, and, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of misinformation that people have that, you know, depression is for people who, 
are weak or, um, you know, anxiety is for people who are just, you know, like worriers, um, you know, you know and, and people who are schizophrenic are always crazy. Um, when we're, in reality, people who are schizophrenia, when you take medicine, um, it's very well controlled and, you know, um, you know, even people that have hallucinations, they don't hallucinate all the time. It's only for a fraction of the day. So, um, and, you know, the other thing about mental illness is people, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people that commit these crimes, uh, you know, like pushing someone on the subway, uh, they tend to have mental illness, but it doesn't mean that if you have mental illness, you're going to be aggressive. So there's a lot of myths about mental illness and, um, uh, you know, unfortunately, I do think not enough people uh, get the care that they need. I think that, you know, reaching out to your pediatrician, if you have a child, reaching out to your pediatrician is, is a great first step, and they often have resources and people that they know to refer you to uh, and that you shouldn't feel embarrassed or ashamed at all because the pediatrician wants to know about it. They may not have time to do anything directly, and they may not have the training to do anything directly, but they can certainly connect you with someone that they trust. Right, right. And that, and there's not, no one's making a judgment. At least the professionals are not making judgments. And, um, again, that theme we were talking about earlier, um, earlier is better. And um, if you could get in and get the counseling or the training or the skills um, that um, would mitigate a bad situation or an unfortunate situation, that could be a really good thing down the line. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, like your workshop where parents can just start to educate themselves, um, that that might be a nice step um, toward um, building skills and getting the help that uh, they and their kids may need. So um, maybe we can um, just quickly recap the services that your um, you and your colleagues provide, and maybe the best way people could get in touch with you. Sure. So our group, Manhattan Psychology Group, provides services for young children, uh, teens, adults, parents, couples, families, and we provide pretty much all types of treatment services. So individual psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, obviously PCIT parent-child interaction therapy, family therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, which is a type of cognitive behavioral therapy, couples or marriage counseling. We go into the home and provide therapy in the home. We do applied behavior analysis with the behavior therapist that we have on staff. We work with schools and consult with teachers um, about school-based issues. We also run social skills groups in our summer camp, and then we do um, traditional play therapy with young children. Um, if parents are interested, they can go to our website, which is www.drjoshuarosenthal.com, drjoshuarosenthal.com, that's R-O-S-E-N-T-H-A-L, or they can call us at 646-450-6210, 646-450-6210. And uh, the way it goes is when you call or email us, um, you leave a message, and then our administrator, Sharon, will call you back and get information and share details about the practice and then try to schedule the first appointment. Yep. And I have on the website for today's show, I have a link to your website um, at your name. I don't have your phone number, but they could certainly go to your website directly through our show site if that's helpful to know. Um, great. And great. And they can find your phone number there, I'm sure. Um so as we close the show, we always love to ask our guests their five fantastic facts for families. And so, Josh, can you tell us basically what's your favorite advice to give families? Sure. Um, so trying to put it together in five facts uh, is tough, but I'll give it my shot. So I would do uh, the special time with each child for at least five minutes per day. So each parent with each child, five minutes per day. Um, I would be consistent by doing what you say. So children learn by watching your behavior, not so much what you say, so be consistent. That's number two. Try to ignore minor misbehavior, so things that you know don't require an immediate response, things like whining and crying and being demanding, all those things you can really ignore. 
uh, and discipline for bad behavior. So using timeouts with young children, very, very effective. I would also say number four, we pick your battles and try to be flexible. So um, just knowing that, you know, kids will be kids and, you know, sometimes they'll be on great behavior and other times they won't and just trying to, you know, not get caught up in um, power struggles uh, and just trying to be as flexible because that's a good skill to teach them how to be flexible. And and similarly, just being a role model. You know, if you show your kids how to behave and they will copy you um, to a certain degree. So those would be my five. Okay, great, great. Well, this was very informative. Um, so thank you, Josh, so much for your time. This was really great. And that's pretty much our show for today. So I want to thank our guest, Dr. Joshua Rosenthal, for lending his time and his expertise. And as I said earlier, I have the link to his practice on our the show's website. Um, so you can click there to find out more. And I want to thank our guests as well for tuning in. And always um, invite our guests to email us at the show with questions or comments or feedback. We'd love that as well. And you can email us at info at kidsa-to-z.com. That's info at kidsa-to-z.com. You can actually follow us on the Blog Talk Radio page, and you can also follow us on Facebook, um, which is Kids A to Z with Dr. T. You can also follow me on Twitter um, at Dr. Teresa. And um, I guess that's about it. Again, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to Dr. Joshua Rosenthal. And I am Teresa Signorelli, your host. Hope everybody has a great day. <laughs>